0: And we are recording, yeah, recording, you just 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 had to, mm-hmm, fair enough, clear down route, episode seven.
1: I liked my start better.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of Cleared On Route, the Canadian Aviation Podcast. My name is Danny Vicar and joining me as always from Toronto is my co-host, Chris Johnson. Hey Danny, how's it going down there in Hamilton? Oh, it's going great. Temperatures are going down. Winter's almost here. I can't wait for the snow.
1: Yeah, you know, there was freezing rain there in Toronto today, or here in Toronto. Ah, that's and what uh, Toronto calls an emergency. It, it is. I uh, saw the army en route on my way home from work today. Ah yes, so.
0: yes. Must have been Mayor Rob Ford's car was uh, needing
1: some uh, deicing or something. Yeah, something like that. Actually, that I think that was a previous marriage. Uh, Rob Ford calls the police. It was Mel Lastman who calls the army when he needs help.
0: Oh, of course, so, of course. We're well,
1: actually improving here in Toronto by that you know stretch.
0: Ah yes, keeping it local. Our,
1: our next mayor will call the crossing guard when he needs assistance.
0: Mm,
1: mm. All right, so politics, yay, <laughs> politics. Yeah, well, um, we're here to talk aviation, I heard.
0: Yeah, something like that. Um, looking at the uh, FAs, the GFAs, the graphical area forecast, don't ask me why it's GFA. I should probably know this.
1: Definitely, you're the guy who's well on his way. Yeah,
0: I so. should. Okay, if if any flight instructors, especially some of mine are listening, don't, don't pay attention to that. I totally know why something named graphical area forecast is um, abbreviated as GFA. Just saying, Uh, but looking at it, the freezing level's nice and low. We've got lots of turbulence and a lot of icing from surface to about uh, three thousand feet above ground level. So, winter's here! Hooray!
1: Yeah, it's a good time to fly the sims with real weather on, of course. Obviously, need a challenge. Anyways, where were we? I think we were We're just about to get the news.
0: I see the red light on, so that's usually what it means. So in this episode, we'll be talking about some news, looking at the F-18s coming back. Uh, There was a plane crash that we mentioned last time in uh, Richmond, B.C., and there's some some response there from the mayor of uh, Richmond. There's some good discussion on whether or not Canadians should be feeling guilty about flying from the States when it's a lot cheaper. And some controversy down in Texas about a UAV that the uh, sheriff's department is looking to use. And we'll also be looking a little bit more at the great Mars race in space. There's a, uh, a launch happening a couple of days from now, three days from now. And um, the people are still up there in ISS, in the International Space Station. So Indeed. lots of great stuff to look at.
1: Indeed. Very, very busy time in space.
0: Well, let's just jump right into it. We're a little bit uh, late just talking about this, but the F-18s have returned from Libya, Canada's F-18s and um, C-17s, as well as uh, the C-130s and C-150s, tank- 150 tankers, rather, sorry, that were sent out there to support them have returned from their mission in Libya. And luckily, we didn't have any casualties, which, great job, boys and girls.
1: Yeah, absolutely, very... Hearty congratulations! It is in order for all of the men and women of the Air Force. Sorry, the Royal Canadian Air Force. My bad. Yeah, they've uh,
0: they they had quite quite a few um, sorties out there, close to a thousand nine hundred and forty six, according to the CBC website. And they dropped uh, six hundred and ninety six bombs. That uh, the the whole Libya mission wasn't that long. It was what six six months or so.
1: Yeah, it started off early early in spring, yeah. uh, March or, or April. And that that is a tremendous amount story. It's a very busy conflict. Um, as I understand it, most of it was hitting anti-aircraft or, or kind of the armored positions of the Gaddafi forces. And w- it was an aim to prevent them from using those forces against the civilian and the rebellion forces for the most part.
0: Yeah, it still seems like a... I did not expect there to be close to a thousand sorties. That's uh, that's quite amazing. Um, we also had a frigate there and a uh, CP-140 Aurora um, for maritime patrol. And uh, I believe we were all based out of Italy. I wonder how long
1: that flight is from Italy to Libya.
0: So each sortie was about a thousand kilometers or 500 or so nautical miles. That's that's quite the
1: distance they had to try, travel from Chapani there. Well, a thousand, a thousand kilometers. I mean, that's uh, that's beyond the range, the combat radius, isn't it? It's about five, six hundred kilometers for this aircraft. For the CF18, yeah, it's somewhere around
0: there. But uh, they did have the CC150s um, and the CC130 uh, tankers helping right, them out along right. with other co- coalition forces um, in the air and helping them out. With the big uh, NATO mission, so um, lots of air to air refueling which is I, just I always forget fantastic they can do that. I would definitely well, love to be on in either aircraft um, doing an air
1: to air refuel see this is where we differ again, just like the buffalo flight up north. I just have no interest in that kind of aviation myself
0: too close for your comfort,
1: yeah, you know I mean they do it a lot, clearly, they do it a lot it 's a, it's a well practiced skill of theirs. But again, I don't know, airplanes touching each other, uh, not not my thing, you know? Yeah, it
0: sounds a lot worse when you say it like that. Moving on to our next story here, we mentioned in our last episode that there was a plane crash in Richmond, B.C. A King Air 100 crashed as it was approaching YVR, Vancouver Airport, to land um, during an emergency. Reports from the CBC say that the airplane experienced some sort of oil leak from the left engine, and the pilot decided to turn around about 15 minutes into the flight. Now, there's been a number of crashes in that area in the last four years or so, and the mayor of Richmond actually wants to take a look into whether or not every single aircraft needs to land at YVR.
1: I believe that's a silly uh, response. It, it, you know it, from what i understand technical problems like that um it's going to happen regardless of where the plane was landing at the time so it you know what what's the point really
0: Well, i think his, his main issue is just the amount of general aviation traffic that he's seeing coming in and out of YVR and uh unfortunately making an unscheduled stop in his um in his city in his town there um It's not like he's looking for to get rid of the uh, large jets, the airliners. But he's just wondering. He's putting it out there. He's putting this question out there. Do we need to have um, smaller airplane? Not necessarily small aircraft, but something the size of a King Air or uh, a Piper Piper Seneca or something like that uh, flying out of YVR? Or could they go
1: to another airport? I think that in that regard the answer is absolutely yes you need those kinds of aircraft flying out of there. Um here in Toronto we have a similar airport uh, downtown and and close to the downtown core and it's it's instrumental for a number of business people making trips, you know, to Montreal, to Ottawa, to New York City, to Chicago, to to various places around the region and then to be able to land here and go downtown, get to your business without renting a car or or just to take a taxi cab. It's it's a very important service to to businesses. Yeah, for sure. And in
0: Vancouver, the closest uh, airport to Vancouver International Airport would probably be Boundary Bay Airport, which is about 20 kilometers straight line to the southeast of it. Um. That would be a little bit far. It's not really close to anything. Downtown Vancouver is
1: really a lot closer to uh, the international airport than uh, Boundary Bay. Absolutely, and and we've had a comparable situation with Pearson just down the road from downtown Toronto. But even at that, you know, to get from Pearson to Toronto and and that distance, it's it's not straightforward or easy, especially um, rush hour traffic too. Oh, don't even consider it in rush hour traffic. Just don't even consider it. It's not worth it. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of
0: this. I mean, we never want to hear of airplanes going down. And, you know, we're not saying that, hey, you know, an airplane fell down, just deal with it. Um, But at the same time, you have to realize that a lot of businesses and a lot of
1: people depend on the airports that are there and the infrastructure, the air infrastructure that is there. Yeah, and it's it's not at all about whether an airplane goes down to me. It's just that it's you know to have that reaction to a single airplane going down going down is is not necessarily rational. And and I agree maybe it's not single it's it's multiple planes over a number of years. And and he thinks it's too many. But again, if if maybe a larger plane goes down, are we going to ban those from that airport? Probably not. You know, aviation or, or any form of travel is inherently risky. And and people who take part in it accept that risk. And, you know, our society accepts those risks. And again, the, the value of that, I think, is is far away of those risks.
0: So sticking with taking a look at uh, international airports, we have an article from The Globe and Mail entitled, Should I Feel Guilty About Flying Out of Buffalo Instead of Toronto? Now, in this article, Karen Smith goes on to tell us uh, what a lot of people in this area know usually it's a lot cheaper to just hop over the border and catch a flight from buffalo than it is to fly out of uh, a canadian airport um, according to brett snyder from the cranky pearson is one of the most expensive airports in north america to operate from for any um, for any airline so what happens when it costs the airline money to operate, well, they pass the cost on to consumers, obviously. Um, So, what do you think of this, Chris? Should she feel guilty?
1: I think absolutely not. She should not feel guilty. Uh, Let me explain this. I am someone who has flown numerous, numerous, numerous times in Canadian airspace on, on literally hundreds of domestic Canadian flights. And if I were to sit down and calculate the cost of that, I mean... I could buy a dream home instead, probably. It's it's tremendously expensive to fly in this country. And as I fly back and forth from Western Canada here, where, where my family lives, it, it's not, you know, impossible for a flight to cost $1,000, a little over $1,000, depending on what time of year you want to go. You know, one way before taxes and fees, $500 to get to Saskatoon. It, it's it's very expensive and I have no doubt that it prevents, uh, you know, it, it, it's a large factor in why people in Canada prefer to travel to Europe, prefer to travel to Australia or the United States. And, and you talk to people our age and they've been all over the world, but they've never been outside of their own province within Canada. And, and no doubt, you know, the extreme cost of, of air travel here is a large factor in that. I
0: think that just goes along with uh, everything else that us Canadians uh, pay a lot for, uh, or a lot more than anybody else in the world, really. But uh, that's really a topic for a more politically uh, inclined uh, podcast. But uh, basically, For sure. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, well, I, th- I think, too, like politics aside from it, that there is a little bit, you know, and after I just spent uh, a bit of time there saying that it's tremendously expensive – At the same time, I mean, I understand what the the market force is. We don't have a very big market for air travel. But what we do have is a very big and, you know, spacious country that consumes a lot of fuel to fly across. So, you know, why is it uh, a ticket to Saskatoon expensive? Because there's maybe 20 other people on the flight with me and we have to fly 3,000 kilometers together. That's a, you know, hefty fuel bill when you split it up across 20 people.
0: Also, really, they're 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 paying to put up with you, so
1: you know. Well, that as well, yes. But usually, you can pay the ten dollar fee to be seated away from me, and that's now in the online logon as well.
0: Ah, it's the so. Chris Johnson special.
1: Yep, Air Canada has learned.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, your your feelings and, and my feelings towards this uh, is that yes, sh- you should not feel guilty. Unfortunately, this is the reality. There is something to be said about being Canadian and buying Canadian um, and, you know, supporting your country. But in this case, unless you're, you know, you're, you're doing it, you're flying on a weekly basis, um, really go, go over is cheaper. And those are kind of the sentiments that are reflected in the comments. And there's actually an Af-Af Canada uh, forum post about this as well. And that's kind of what they're saying as well.
1: Well, and, and I mean, one thing should we point out as well is that even in all of the previous cases I explained, I couldn't actually use this because for my domestic flights, you know, it, it doesn't matter. This is only for flights if you're looking to fly to a destination in the United States. I mean, you're, you're not going to go to Buffalo to fly back to Saskatoon. Or maybe I, I should look into it. Hmm. Never actually checked that. But yeah, this doesn't apply to domestic for the most part.
0: It would be interesting to see what our or rather to hear what our listeners think about this. Um, I wonder what the, the feeling is overall there. I mean, you can get a good feel for from the comments left on the article and uh, the comments in AF Canada. But it'd be interesting to see what our uh, listeners think about this. So drop us a line, tweet us, drop, leave a comment on our website, and it uh, be interesting to see what uh, what you think of this. So, switching gears a little bit, uh, let's talk about our neighbors to the south. Um, in Texas, Pop- Popular Science reports that a Texas Sheriff's Department is launching an unmanned helodrone that could carry weapons. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Now, the Shadowhawk, how's that for an awesome name? It's intimidating. Is a, uh, helicopter, uh, like um, it's a helicopter-like drone. It's an unmanned aerial system that a uh, sheriff's department a little bit south of Houston, or a little bit outside of Houston, rather, um, is looking to purchase and put into use. It's a $300,000 machine, um, and it's uh, it looks
1: pretty awesome, actually. It looks pretty scary, I think you mean. It's an, I mean, if that thing had a beanbag gun on it, I would not want to be on the mean end of it
0: yeah well that that's um, the uh, the sheriff's departments currently saying that they're just going to be using it for surveillance and to um, engage in uh, police pursuits and things like that um, somehow in hostage situations or something like that um, but what critics are saying and um, we'll talk a little bit more about what I think of how uh, popular science is showing this. What critics are saying is, well, this could potentially carry something like a taser, an aerial taser, or a uh, beanbag gun. So, we don't like it.
1: Uh, well, I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable stretch to to imagine that they attach some sort of weapon like that to it.
0: No, you, you know what? Yeah, they, they could attach it. Um, I don't think they would anytime soon um, depending on how much it costs to add it on Uh, but the way that uh, popular science describes this is uh, I don't know, it's very sensationalistic to me Uh, they're kind of making a big deal out of the fact that oh my god, it could carry weapons rather than, oh cool, look what they're doing
1: yeah, I mean that's, that's fair, I guess I I got to be honest though I mean I don't even necessarily know how I feel about uh civilian police forces using military drones that that's a little creepy on occasion you know well, depending you, on the application
0: Yeah well UAVs are are coming in more and more into a a more civilian role uh, obviously they when when they first started designing them they were designing them for the uh US Army, uh or for army and military use, but now they're finding more and more uh uses in civilian uh airspace and civilian so I I've got no problem with them flying around. Um I don't expect I'll be tased by them. And hey, if Skynet ever gets up, well we just need to put a virus in it and, you know,
1: well, it's <laughs> all good. Yeah, if you've got the time before they've got the weapons installed. That's, you know, are they going to become smart before that or after the weapons? That's the big question. Well, if they're smart,
0: it's after the weapons.
1: <laughs> True. <laughs> Very well played.
0: So it'll be so, interesting uh, to see where else we're going to be seeing these uh, these UAVs.
1: You know, I think the answer with that is everywhere, Um eventually. I, I can't think of anywhere that hasn't been proposed for UAVs, if not already tested or prototyped. I, I mean, name an industry, name an area where they've used manned flight, and I guarantee that there's someone out there working, working for UAV. Everywhere I've looked, uh, aerial applications for farming, surveillance, filming, mining operations, military, it, the UAVs have taken over already. So now that we've uh, covered a little bit of uh, terrestrial news, let's
0: talk extraterrestrial, as in space. Mm, November space. <laughs> on November twenty fifth, there's a Mars rover ready- readying for launch, and it'll be sent to, as the name would imply, to Mars.
1: Absolutely, the Curiosity rover.
0: So what's uh, what's so cool about this one? What's so everything?
1: Different? Obviously. You know, it's not actually what's so different about it. It's, it's what is new about it or, or what's, you know, I don't know what the right term is, maybe evolutionary about it. But if you take a look at all the pictures of the Mars rovers, you know, Opportunity, Spirit, they're all basically the same design. You know, they're all six-wheeled. They've all kind of got articulated little um, suspension systems. But they've progressively gotten bigger and they've progressively gotten more capable scientifically and more capable in terms of the terrain they can move over or the artificial intelligence that they apply towards it. So that's that's really the story of this one. It's just the latest and the biggest and the baddest of all the Mars rovers.
0: Sounds pretty awesome. Now, it's uh, it says here in the CBC article that it's approximately 2 meters tall, which is about twice as tall as uh, um, the previous two were. And uh, Curiosity also weighs about 900 kilograms, which is a
1: lot. It is. It's a very large rover. And it's so large, in fact, that they've had to invent a new way to lower it to the surface. You'll remember the previous rovers, they used a inflationary bouncing ball mechanism. Mm-hmm. And they would just simply bounce and bounce and bounce. And then they had a little lander platform that could kind of self-upright once its its arms unfolded or its solar panels unfolded. It would upright itself. And these little rovers could just kind of toddle off and carry on their missions separate from the home base. Well, because of the mass of this guy, because of how delicate the instruments are and just kind of you know how big and mean this thing is... They have to use a sky crane to lower it to the surface. So the, there's great video on YouTube, and, and I recommend, and we'll link it. It's fantastic to watch the animations of what's going on. But I'll give you a brief, you know, synopsis here. Basically, it will enter the atmosphere and, and use the heat shield to slow down like any other spacecraft would. And then the heat shield will separate from the spacecraft, and the rover will be underneath that heat shield, be kind of exposed at that point. And a parachute will come out. And the parachute will come out and it'll start traveling vertically and it'll descend downwards. And as it nears the surface, the rover, as well as the sky crane, will detach from the parachute and start falling towards the surface. And at this point, it'll use lasers and and radar to determine how close it is and what the terrain looks like below it, so it can determine where it's going to land. And as it nears the surface, the sky crane will ignite retro rockets which will actually cause it to hover above the surface and just kind of float there on these retro rockets. And at that point the rover itself will be lowered down on cables basically and that's why its a crane is it's you know got a winch and a cabling system and it'll gently lower the rover down. Once the rover makes contact it'll disconnect and the sky crane will fly off and crash land somewhere. And bam, you've got a rover sitting on the surface of Mars, ready to go. That, so, I mean, just massive points for difficulty there in, that, in terms that of engineering. Pretty awesome. Watch the video; it's 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 fantastic. It's great. It's amazing.
0: So, what exactly is uh, going to be its mission now?
1: Well, it's going to continue like its design. Uh, its science mission continues where the other rovers left off. So. Some of the things that the previous two rovers discovered and confirmed for us for example is that Mars was once a wet planet. They've discovered ancient oceans and ancient riverbeds and ancient minerals and and types of stone that could only have been put down by um you know the gentle layering of sediment on the bottom of an ocean. And and so this one is going there to start determining what was that wet past like was there life there is there organic chemicals and and so it's going to carry a drill and it's it's going to try and drill into rocks and see what's below the surface you know the the other rovers have shown us kind of the the broad strokes of what mars is about and and a little bit of its past and its future and now we're really going to start drilling into it with this one and and analyzing what is it made of what are the chemicals that are there and and could there be life? Could there have been life in the past or even uh even at this point? Another thing we've discovered in the meantime is a curious source of methane on Mars. And so there's gonna be some instruments there to look at look at this. And what's curious about it is that methane tends to break down in sunlight fairly easily. So if you have a large source of methane in a in a planet's atmosphere, you know, a few hundred years later you're not gonna have much methane left. The the parent star is gonna break it down. And on Mars there, there seems to be methane, and it seems to be seasonal you know every every year, the same amount of methane starts building up and then beyond that uh, the replenishment relate or the depletion rate of of the methane in Mars is faster than would be expecting. I just said it would be you know a few hundred years on a regular planet there 's something on Mars that removes it much, much faster on the order of months or or even a year so very mysterious things going on, on mars and and this rover is going to find some answers or hopefully find some answers to those questions.
0: That sounds really great now uh, it'll be landing in the gale it's supposed to be landing in the Gale crater. Um, this crater is about ninety six miles across and about three miles high and according to NASA, it'll travel <coughs> about twelve months. 12 sorry 12 miles rather um inside this crater and its mission is about 23 months but who knows maybe it'll go longer like uh, the other rovers did
1: yeah the other rovers were i mean meant for 90 days and went 6 800 i I forget the total but just literally one of them is still going and and spirit the one that was recently lost um you know, was just recently declared dead. It, 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 they had hoped it would come back in the and summer once it got more sun, but that that didn't happen. So, you know, just a, a fantastic mission. There's there's so much to be excited about for this mission. Um, a, a long continuation of of you know very successful science that's already taken place and, and very successful engineering that's taken place. So the the best of luck for this one, and it should be launching in just a couple days after we air this. So, you know, take a look. No doubt there'll be a live launch, and watch it. It'll be great.
0: Yeah, according to NASA's Mars Science Laboratory, the scheduled liftoff will be November 26th,